The story you were about to hear is true. Attention, all true. She's alive. going through some photos the other day and I came across a photo of myself and my mother from when I was in grammar school. And everybody has a lot of these embarrassing photos of them and their parents when they're in grammar school. I'm not sure what the function was but we were both dressed up and I was standing there with a big stupid grin on my face. Now you're probably thinking about your own photos and what you look like in them. Probably were wearing a suit or a dress that you think is embarrassing now. Me, I looked awesome because I was wearing a Miami Vice linen suit. I was wearing all white with a pair of brown shoes, no socks. I had a aqua shirt on underneath. I'm pretty sure it was winter from the way my mother is dressed. As you could probably guess, my family were huge Miami Vice fans. My mother had a thing for Don Johnson, I believe. So when it came to get me formal wear, we went to Sears, maybe it was Macy's, and picked out a suit for me. Well, I say we. What I really mean is my mom and my sisters picked out a suit for me. I really was not a big clothes horse back then. They made most of my fashion decisions. The Miami Vice suit was a particularly unusual decision because I didn't live in Florida. This was New Jersey. And there are other photos of me in groups with other kids. And none of them are wearing anything like this at all. They're all wearing normal suits. Some of them are just wearing shirts and ties. There's some really cool kids who are just wearing t-shirts and jeans. I don't know how they got away with that. I think I thought I was so cool compared to all the other kids. There I am, towering a couple of inches above everyone else, a giant aqua and white sore thumb, standing out, grinning, obviously the apple of his Don Johnson loving mother's eye. It was certainly a daring fashion decision. And when I look at the photo, I cringe a little, but mostly I smile because Miami Vice was a show that I watched with my mother. It was something we had in common. And pop cultural associations that cross generations are rare things and should be celebrated. On today's show, we're going to talk about the television phenomenon that was Miami Vice. From its bright beginnings to its dark ends, we'll talk about the show's art design, its cast, the music, its impact on popular culture, and the movie that it would inspire 25 years later. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. tell you boss if he don't come see me face to face i'm gonna sell his stuff on the street and there won't be no 50 key deal now you hit the ground running i just love that clip after the theme song that is steve buscemi being beaten up by don johnson and surprisingly willie nelson which is just great i would pay money any day to see willie nelson beat up steve buscemi Here's a fun fact about me and Steve Buscemi. I worked on a music video with Steve when I used to work in film production back in the day. 
I have a great memory because after the video had wrapped, we all sat on a closed New York street eating pizza on the sidewalk. Me, a whole bunch of other production people, and Steve. Really nice guy. Great memory. Steve was the director and was busy all day, but he took the time to sit down with everybody at the end of the day to thank them, buy him some food, and left us with a really good memory. Thanks, Steve. The theme song for Miami Vice was written and performed by Jan Hammer. Hammer not only wrote this very successful score, but scored the background music on Miami Vice and helped to choose all that great music that went along with it from 1984 to 1988 when he bowed out. The Miami Vice theme actually is an award-winning piece. In 1986, it won Best Pop instrumental performance and best instrumental composition at the grammy awards the song also earned hammer an emmy award nomination in 85 and 86 for best outstanding achievement in musical composition we will of course talk some more about the music of miami vice later we'll talk some more about hammer's other awards we'll talk about the amazing amount of pop music that was pulled into the show but now let's talk about the show itself and how it began so how did an iconic show like Miami Vice get its start? Well, it started in the brain of Brandon Tartikoff. Brandon Tartikoff was the head of NBC's entertainment division back in the 80s. He is largely credited with turning around NBC's low primetime reputation in the 80s, with such hits as Miami Vice, Golden Girls, Family Ties, ALF, Night Court, you name it, in the 80s. And if it was on NBC, probably Brandon Tartikoff was behind it. Very famous guy. Oddly enough, the genesis of the show started off as an idea he wrote on a brainstorming memo, and that memo simply read MTV Cops. The memo got around and eventually got in the hands of a guy named Anthony Yurkovich. Anthony Yurkovich was a writer and producer for the hit show Hill Street Blues. Yurkovich thought it was a really interesting idea to present sort of a new wave cop show and started thinking of locations, and, and he'd read this article about law enforcement agencies being able to confiscate the property of drug dealers and thought it'd be interesting to have the show revolve around these vice cops who fought drugs and at the same time could take possession of the drug dealers merchandise so they could be having these tricked out cars these awesome boats all courtesy of the same drug dealers that they were trying to beat every week it was a great plot point that allowed the cops to be just as glamorous as the drug dealers having cops fight the war on drugs in a tv show was also clever because in the early 80s, it was a very popular topic, one that would allow them to have free publicity based on just what was going on in the news and in the White House. So he looked into different locations and different themes, and he started working on a two-hour pilot, which he titled Gold Coast. Gold Coast was about a pair of vice cops in Miami, so it wasn't a big leap to rename the show Miami Vice. It was a brand new type of show in that the show would focus on cops who combat drug traffic and prostitution and would start to show the futility of the drug war that was going on in Florida at the time and what they called the whack-a-mole nature of drug interdiction. I mean, it's perfect for television. What they would do is every episode have a brand new drug cartel and that seemed natural because that seemed to be what was happening in the war on drugs at the time. Now, as Tartikoff's memo had said, it should be a cop show, but it should also be based on what was going on in MTV at the time. So there was a really heavy new wave influence on the show. And if you watch it, it would often break into what resembled a music video, often with Crockett driving around. Music would just start playing, and we would have two and a half minutes of pure music and wordless action. So not only did the show break new grounds, showing police in a neon-bathed, grittier light, it was also one of the first shows to pick up on the new production values that were going on in the early 80s thanks to MTV. The whole Miami thing was not a snap decision. It had been something that was in co-executive producer and creator Anthony Yurkovich's head for a long time. He's quoted as saying, 
even when I was on Hill Street Blues, I was collecting information on Miami. I thought of it as a sort of modern-day American Casablanca. It seemed to be an interesting socio-economic tide pool, the incredible number of refugees from Central America and Cuba, the already extensive Cuban-American community, and on top of all that, the drug trade. There is a fascinating amount of service industries that revolve around the drug trade. Money laundering, bail bondsmen, attorneys who service drug smugglers, Miami has become the sort of Barbary Coast of free enterprise gone berserk. So as you can see, he had been planning this all along, and it really was a perfect choice. It captured that sort of mid-80s pastel optimism bathed with the sort of darkness of drugs and crime. Perfect. Yurkovich certainly contributed a lot in the creation of the show, but he only stayed on as co-executive producer for seven episodes before turning it over to Michael Mann who everybody famously knows as the man behind Miami Vice. Under Mann's guidance, the show would grow exponentially in popularity, but also would take on a completely different feel. In the first few episodes, the show had a, definitely a more procedural feel to it, which is how most cop shows ran back then. But under Mann's executive production, the show would come into its own. Plots would go from multiple episodes. It would become a little bit more soap opera-y with recurring characters. There would definitely be a lot more shades of gray. Oddly enough, there were no other shades of gray in the show because, as you know, under man's guidance, the show dropped all sorts of earth tones and shades of gray. Instead, there were a lot of pastels, no earth tones. He was very insistent on no earth tones. There's a very famous quote by director Bobby Roth, who worked on Miami Vice. He said about the lack of earth tones, there are certain colors you are not allowed to shoot, such as red and brown. If the script says, a Mercedes pulls up here, the car people will show you three or four Mercedes. One will be white, one will be black, one will be silver. You will not get a red or brown one. Michael, Michael Mann that is, knows how things are going to look on camera. So Mann made a very conscious decision early on of what colors should be on the show. That just demonstrates the level of oversight he brings to the show as its executive producer and his willingness to contribute to the overarching artistic vision of the project. This famous directive on color would last for the first two seasons of the show. Then they would try to take it in a much more dark direction, and the ratings dipped because everyone fell in love with the initial design of the show. Everyone loved those pastel, drenched, colorful sets. I mean, that's what made Miami Vice Miami Vice. So they would eventually return to those pastels in hopes of regaining their flailing viewership. Although Mann and Yurkovich are very important, we cannot discount the contribution of the talented actors who were on the show. So let's talk a little bit about the cast and the actors who played them. The show's main stars are Don Johnson, who played Detective James Sonny Crockett, and Philip Michael Thomas, who played Detective Ricardo Rico Tubbs. Johnson's character, Crockett, my mother's favorite, is a sergeant in the Metro-Dade Police Department and an undercover detective. He's a former football star of the University of Florida who has a bad injury that ends his sports career, so he goes into the Army and serves two tours in Vietnam. After he gets out, he joins the Metro-Dade Police Department as a patrol officer before being assigned to the Vice Unit. In the show, he had to stick to his undercover name, which was Sonny Burnett, who was a drug runner and middleman who liked to drive a Ferrari. Crockett was famous for living on a sailboat, like another one of my favorite TV characters, Quincy M.E. Of course, Quincy never had a pet alligator named Elvis living on his boat. Don Johnson almost didn't get the role. He had been jumping from series to series, trying to get a pilot established on television. When they were casting Miami Vice, they actually had other people in mind. They tried out Nick Nolte, who I believe was also up for the role of Han Solo. So he could have been Han Solo and Crockett. Although the producers thought it was a good choice, Nick Nolte and his representation did not think it was a lucrative 
deal for a movie actor to go back to television. It was a very different time and place. Nowadays, that would be a great gig for any actor. Another actor who was considered for the role of Crockett was Larry Wilcox of Chips. You might remember that Larry played Officer John Baker on that very successful series. If he had landed this role, that could have been two very successful shows under his belt, both of them cop-related. Two other people who were considered for the role of Crockett were Richard Dean Anderson of MacGyver fame and the dude himself, Jeff Bridges. Bridges bowed out for the same reason that Nick Nolte did. The money. They went through dozens of candidates trying to find the right actor, those four being the most notable, and in the end they went with Don Johnson. Strangely enough, after only two seasons, Johnson threatened to walk off the series over a money dispute. The network was ready with a replacement, Mark Harmon, who had just gotten off of St. Elsewhere. When Johnson heard that they had an actor lined up, he relented, and he stayed on with the series until the end. The other main star on the show is Philip Michael Thomas's detective Ricardo Rico Tubbs. Tubbs is a character riddled with pathos. He's a former New York detective who came down to Miami on a personal vendetta against Calderon, the man who murdered his brother. To keep the revenge going, Tubbs eventually decides to transfer to a career in Miami and joins the Miami-Dade Police Department and becomes Crockett's permanent partner. His alias on the show is Rico Cooper, a wealthy buyer from out of town, which actually sounds like an alias like something I would just make up. Oh, I'm a wealthy importer and exporter from out of town. Another actor who was up for the role of Tubbs was Oscar winner Denzel Washington. It's amazing what not getting a role can do to your career. The third actor who appeared on the show on a regular basis was Edward James Olmos, who played Lieutenant Martin Castillo. Castillo was a replacement for Lieutenant Lou Rodriguez, who was played by Gregory Sierra. Rodriguez was killed in the fourth episode of Miami Vice by an assassin who was hired to kill Crockett. Deep intrigue on this show right from the beginning. Castillo, who is the head of the OCB, is a recluse on the show. He's a former DEA agent who used to work in the Golden Triangle during the Vietnam War. He was famous for being a sort of no-nonsense, no-guff-taking lieutenant, which I guess is kind of a stereotype nowadays when it comes to cop bosses. As many of you might know, Edward James Olmos received a promotion from lieutenant to admiral 30 years later and now plays, well, just got over playing Admiral William Adama on Battlestar Galactica. Great show. Word on the street is that during the first season, Edward James Olmos and Don Johnson would get into fights on the set all the time because of their differing acting styles. Olmos was a method actor who would use his internal anger and directed at Johnson's character, so much so that Johnson thought he was actually angry with him. If you watch a lot of the episodes where Castillo and Crockett are in the same scene together, you'll notice that Castillo doesn't even look at Crockett, so angry is he at him. That's some good acting. Rounding out the rest of the cast was Sandra Santiago as Detective Gina Navarro Calabrese, Olivia Brown as Detective Trudy Joplin, Michael Talbot as Detective Stanley Switek, and John Deal as Detective Lawrence Zeep. The show had some great recurring characters, and their appearances were often very memorable. Martin Ferrero played Isidore Moreno, who was a petty criminal and fast talker. Sheena Easton played Caitlin Davies. She's a pop singer who is assigned a police bodyguard, Crockett, because she's going to give testimony in a racketeering case. While protecting her, Sonny falls in love and they get married. Of course, after their marriage, Caitlin is killed by one of Crockett's nemeses. I say nemeses because everyone seems to be Crockett's enemy. Pam Greer shows up as Valerie Gordon, who is a New York Police Department officer and love interest of Tubbs. It's always fun when Pam Greer is on screen. Another memorable member of the cast is the city of Miami itself. Most of the episodes of Miami Vice were filmed in the South Beach section of Miami Beach, which at the time 
was a blighted neighborhood, which is a dramatic change from the glitzy, popular South Beach that we know today. The show is known for being very specific on how it betrayed Miami. They would film in South Beach, and if a house didn't look correct, they would repaint it, making it look just the way they want it. I think it could be said about the show that they modified the reality in which they were filming to fit their vision of what Miami should be like, and the Miami that they were filming in became more like the fantasy that they were betraying. In fact, Miami Vice is sometimes credited with the wave of support for preserving the older buildings of Miami. Now, of course, South Beach is, is one of the largest tourist destinations in South Florida. The show is a virtual who's who's of future successful actors. Here's a partial list of some of the actors and actresses who appeared on the show who would later go on to greatness. You had Don Johnson's past and future wife, Melanie Griffith, John Turturro, Wesley Snipes, Kira Sedgwick, Bill Paxton, Michael Matson, Julia Roberts, Bruce Willis, Lou Diamond Phillips, Liam Neeson, Stanley Tucci. From the comedy world, you had Ben Stiller, Chris Rock, Pendulette, Richard Belzer. And of course, from the music world, you had some really great musicians and personalities. Sheena Easton, Willie Nelson, which I referenced earlier on beating up Steve Buscemi. Eugene Simmons, Glenn Fry, Frank Zappa, of course Phil Collins. You also had Frankie Valli and Little Richard, James Brown, and Miles Davis. The show seems to be a launching point for so many famous people. It's sort of like the reverse of The Love Boat, where on The Love Boat you were once famous, and then you went on The Love Boat in hopes of reviving your career. If you weren't famous and got on Miami Vice, you had a good chance of going somewhere. Greetings, retro fans. This is Metagirl with the top five Miami Vice guest stars of all time. Number five, Liam Neeson, who played an Irish Republican Army terrorist named Sean Caroon in the episode When Irish Eyes Are Crying. Clever episode name, huh? Number four, Phil Collins, who wowed us with his portrayal of Phil Mayhew in the episode Phil the Shill. Apparently, Mr. Collins only responds to the name Phil even when acting. Number three, Bruce Willis who played weapons trader Tony Amato in the episode No Exit. Number two, Julia Roberts, who was the Mafia Mall love interest to an amnesia-suffering Crockett. No, I did not make that up, in the episode Mirror Image. And the number one Miami Vice guest star of all time, Steve Buscemi, who got his butt kicked by a Texas lawman played by Willie Nelson in the episode El Viejo. And there you have it, the retroist top five Miami Vice guest stars of all time. This has been Metagirl. Although Miami Vice was well known for its talented actors and guest stars, it is its musical legacy that most people remember. Credit for this musical success could largely go to Jan Hammer, who I mentioned earlier on, but also to Michael Mann for allowing him the creative freedom to really enhance the soundtrack. While other shows utilized made-for-TV music, Miami Vice was famous for actually spending money to get original recordings to play on the show. An interesting phenomenon started to occur when they did this. When a song got played on the show, it actually increased its sales. It would fly up the charts because it was on Miami Vice. At the time, I remember reading in newspapers, or maybe it was TV Guide, the description of the show and often mentioned the song or the music that would actually be in that episode. The use of pop music of course led to some very iconic scenes, most of which revolved around thoughtful drives around the city with cool music playing, like in this commercial for Pepsi, starring Don Johnson and Glenn Fry.
The show's theme song itself was a huge hit on the Billboard charts. In November of 1985, it made the top of the Billboard charts, and it was the first show to do that since Peter Gunn. And no show has had a single on the top of the Billboard charts since. On the day that it took the top of the charts, Henry Mancini, who had written the theme to Peter Gunn, called Jan Hammer to congratulate him. He had held the record for 25, 30 years, yet he took the time to call the guy who had taken the record from him. That's classy. The song was later released as part of the Miami Vice soundtrack. The Miami Vice original soundtrack made it to the top of the U.S. album charts for 11 weeks in 1985, and the theme song was number one, and Glenn Frey's You Belong to the City, which had been featured on the show, was number two. It was the most successful TV soundtrack to date. Another song from the show, Crockett's Theme, which was a recurring tune on the show, became a number one hit in Europe in 1987. During the show's run, three official soundtrack albums were released. All of them sold very well. To me, Miami Vice means one thing. Phil Collins is in the air tonight. I have a hard time thinking about the show without hearing that song in my head or seeing Phil Collins on the show itself. I think if I ever get down to Miami again, I should rent a car and just drive along like Crockett and Tubbs did, blasting in the air tonight, maybe looking listlessly toward the ocean, thinking of lost loves and enemies that need to be defeated. Miami Vice ran for five seasons starting in 1984 and ending in 1989. For the 84 and 85 season, it was the number 28 show according to the Nielsen ratings. Buzz was so good that in 1985-86 season, it jumped to number 8. Then the show got a little grittier, and it dropped down to number 22 in the 86-87 season, then went down further in 87 and 88 to number 41, and then finally finished at number 61 in 88 and 89. Although the show was a big hit, got a lot of Emmy Awards and Grammy nominations and People's Choice Awards, the show was not without its critics. Many people thought that the show glorified violence and drugs. Many other people who were just critics of the show itself thought that the characters themselves were just caricatures that were covered up in pretty visuals and music. Some of the civic leaders in the city of Miami itself thought that the show portrayed Miami in a negative light, which is interesting that they objected since a lot of money was brought into the city because of the show. I remember reading about the show Dragnet, which is famously based in L.A. Originally, I think I read that they wanted to have the show set in San Francisco, but San Francisco objected under the same grounds, thinking that everyone would think of crime and violence whenever they thought of Dragnet. So instead, they went down the coast and moved the show to L.A., and the rest is history. Now L.A. is famous for Dragnet, and it's hard to think of Dragnet, which is a very positive show, without thinking of L.A. Criticism got so harsh that in 1985, which is considered the best year for Miami Vice, it got 15 Emmy Award nominations. But they think because of conservative backlash against the subject of the show that it only won five. So the show started to get some criticism, the ratings started to dip, and at the end of the third season, the 86 to 87 season, the show was moved up against Dallas. Now, they both had their fans, but it was hard to split an, an audience of that size, and both the ratings for Dallas and Miami Vice suffered. At the third season, the show took a dramatic turn that was not as lighthearted as it had been during the first two seasons. Fans really got angry. I remember my mother, in particular, was miffed and would tell me that she didn't understand why they had changed the show. I guess the viewer complaints actually got through to some of the writers and Michael Mann, and in the fourth season, the pastel colors returned. By the fourth season, the show itself started to get really, I would say, silly. There's this amnesia episode where Crockett thinks he is his drug dealer alter ego, then becomes a hitman. There's the Sheena Easton romance where she gets killed. Also during the season, Jan Hammer left the show, which definitely changed the tone of the music of the show. While the music was still good in the last two seasons, there's just something missing. Personally, I think the show jumped the shark 
when Michael Mann left at the end of the second season, he stepped aside and turned the day-to-day runnings of the show over to Dick Wolf, who had the show focus on the real-life issues where the show got grittier. Mann had moved on to do a show called Crime Story, which did not last long, but was an excellent show in its own right. So we had season one and two where you had the pastels, you had three where we got dark and grittier, then you had the fan response to that, and the show got back to pastels by the fourth, but got sillier. Then by the fifth, the show tried to reinvent itself and went dark and grittier again. But by this point, the fans were really tired, and the show had lost its luster. The 80s were ending, and so would Miami Vice. That was not the last we heard of Miami Vice. In 2006, a film by the same name was released by Michael Mann. It starred Colin Farrell as Crockett and Jamie Foxx as Tubbs. The show went with the grittier version of Miami Vice, which depressed many people, like myself, who hoped it would actually be set in the 80s and would be a reboot of the original series set back in that time. All in all, it's not a horrible movie. It's just when you have high expectations of a film based on another source material, it's hard to capture the original magic without trying to reinvent yourself. Then when you reinvent yourself, you take the risk that it might not be as good as the original. On a scale of 1 to 10, I give the movie probably a 7. It's not the worst movie in the world. It's a decent crime drama. I find it a little confusing at times in that the characters seem to lack a central drive. I really don't know what man was going for here, except for maybe some sort of slick new MTV reinvention. I would prefer that they had set the movie in the 80s, and if they were going to try to reboot the show, they should do it on television, and continue the story as if things had been going on all along. It doesn't have to have Don Johnson, although that might be cool. Picture it as Miami Vice, the next generation. Can't end the show without talking about Miami Vice's influences on video games, most notably in Grand Theft Auto Vice City, which was published by Rockstar. Disclaimer, I am a former employee of their parent company, so take everything I say with a grain of salt. The game is set in a stylized Miami, and of course it's about villains, it's Grand Theft Auto. But you have Philip Michael Thomas in the game, giving voice to a character named Lance Vance, who has a very similar look to Tubbs, and the art design, cars, everything matches the feel of Miami Vice perfectly. Earlier in the show, I talked about driving around Miami in a convertible, listening to Phil Collins, and how great that would but I actually experienced the feel of that in Vice City, driving along the ocean, listening to Flock of Seagulls, and there's nothing stranger than the disconnect of listening to 80s pop music while committing horrible acts of violence. It is a strange feeling that will never be recreated in any game, I don't think. For the longest time, we had to be content with watching Miami Vice and reruns on TV. It was always very difficult to catch it, and it was always on different channels. But a couple of years ago, Quest to get them on DVD ended. Universal Studios Home Entertainment released all of the Miami Vice seasons on DVD. The DVD release of the show had been really slow because it was difficult to get the rights to all the music that was in the show. But now that it's out, it's great to have it. I have a copy of it myself, which over the last few months I've watched from end to end. Now that I'm finished, I was thinking about sending it to my mother. Maybe I'll pop over her house with it. Maybe we can watch it together again. I'll put on my white linen suit, and we can relive the glory of the 80s together. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, drop by The Retroist at www.retroist.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at twitter.com retroist. Thanks to Metagirl for another great list. If you have a list suggestion, email it to metagirl at metagirl at retroist.com. If you have an idea for the show, don't forget to email it to me at retroist at retroist.com. Thanks again for listening to the show. I look forward to talking to you all next week. Have a great weekend.
Cut that part out, you idiot. This has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.